Well, if you were in a church or around a Christian back in the 1990s, uh, what I'm about to show you will be very familiar to you. Matter of fact, I have no frame of reference that if you were in a church or around a Christian in the 1990s and you don't know or you're not familiar with what I'm about to show you, I have no frame of reference for you. I, I don't even know what kind of church you were in. I don't even know what kind of Christians you thought you knew. Uh, because I think that anybody who was remotely in a church or remotely around a Christian will recognize this right here. WWJD. How many remembers that? You remember that? Okay. Some of you, it's like, I don't know who you are. I mean, what planet? Uh, but WWJD was something that just kind of took America and churches and Christians and culture by storm back somewhere around the 90s. And of course, what does it stand for? What does it stand for? Oh, what would, I know who I'm talking to. What would Jesus do? I heard you, Williamsburg. I heard you, Somerset. Uh, just not London. But listen, what would Jesus do? And, and it was a question that became a slogan that became a movement. A question that became, you know, a slogan that became a movement. And you could see it on bracelets, you know, bracelets, WWJD. How many of you had a bracelet back in the day? Come on now, be honest, be honest. You know, you'd look down, you're about to do something wrong, you know, and you'd put your hand, oh, WWJD, that's, 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 that's it right there. There, you know, but I always thought it could be better. You know, I thought it should be YSD, WWJD. You should do what Jesus would do. Uh, but simply knowing what Jesus would do, you know, but you know, that that's a little long and a little complicated and it didn't, you know, ring as well for most folks, but it was on bracelets. It was on t-shirts. It was on bumper stickers, uh, devotionals, socks, underwear, I'm telling you, I'm, now that I'm older, I understand. I, I didn't at the time, now I understand. And, and so that's all I'm gonna say. And it's like, uh, I, I get it now, some of you are slow to the party, but that's all right. Some of you, it will be dinner tonight or when you lay down tonight, you're gonna be like, the underwear, I get it. I understand what he's talking about. Oh my goodness, it was on lunch boxes because I guess, you know, we wanted to make kids feel guilty about what would Jesus eat, uh, what would Jesus not eat, um, and, and that apparently didn't work real well. Uh, but <clears throat> this whole thing, what would Jesus do? It's a great question, and, and it is part of the Christian faith because Jesus is our example, and he said, these things I do that you should do also. But it, it was a phrase that originated, this is interesting, it was a phrase that originated out of a book that was written in the, in the late 1800s, around 1894, I think. And it's a fascinating story about that book. That book would actually become one of the best-selling books of all time. But the, you know, the title of the book and the subtitle of the book, What Would Jesus Do?, just kind of disappeared. And it resurfaced nearly a century later in a youth group in a church up in Michigan. And, and from Michigan, it kind of spread out to churches and Christians all across the country. Now, I was back, I was a, I was a teenager, I was a student back in the 90s, so I was in a youth group. I was, matter of fact, I was in like a couple of different youth groups because there wasn't a youth group at the church that I was in at the moment. So I, I went and visited a couple of other churches on Wednesday night and Sunday night. But from the best that I can tell and the best that I remember, what would Jesus do? WWJD basically became the centerpiece of the youth group strategy all across America to keep teenagers like me from the unholy trinity, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, that was pretty much, you know, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And you can't go there and you can't do that. But I was, I was, a, I was a snarky kid. I was a little bit of a sar sarcastic little punk at times. And, and I had problems with what would Jesus do? And I voiced them and it was never received very well. And, and I, I would say, well, you know, what would Jesus do? That's all good and well, but 
you know, you're telling me to stay away from all the people that I actually find Jesus hanging out with. So what would Jesus do? I, I don't know. Can you understand? We'll talk about it later. Uh, you know, or what would Jesus do? You know, I'm pretty sure he'd order the wine and not the water if he was 21. Uh, so can you help me understand that? And let's talk about it later. You know, or, you know, I think what Jesus would do would just be a smart aleck and instigate like I'm kind of trying to do right now because I see him doing that all the time. And the phrase got hijacked, you know, the environmentalists who were worried about climate change and greenhouse gases and all that, you know, they, they would ask, what would Jesus drive? You know, as if Jesus wouldn't drive an SUV. I think he would. I don't know, but that's just me. Uh, you know, or the pacifists, they would ask the question, who would Jesus bomb? You know, uh, Occupy Wall Street, they came along and asked the question, who would Jesus tax? And so it kind of it had its own set of problems and it got hijacked and kind of faded off, you know, into the uh, background of culture. But I wanna ask a different kind of question today. It's similar to what would Jesus do, but, but it's a different question. And here's the question we wanna ask through the series. What would Jesus undo? What would Jesus undo? What would, what would Jesus deconstruct? Uh, what would Jesus dismantle? Uh, what would Jesus correct? Correct about you, correct about me, correct about us. What would, what would Jesus reorder? What would Jesus, here, here's, here's a word we don't use a lot. What would Jesus rebuke? What would Jesus rebuke today? What, what would Jesus redirect us from and redirect us towards? Uh, what would Jesus seek to clarify uh, or do away with? Uh, what would Jesus criticize or remodel, uh, you know, reorganize? What would it be? And, and today I wanna talk about something that I believe that Jesus wanted to undo in the first century. And I believe it's something that Jesus still wants to undo in your life and my life and our life today. And what we're going to talk about is the fact that I believe that Jesus wants to undo the God box. Now, right here, uh, you may have never seen one before, but this is an actual God box. No, it's not. This is Allison's jewelry box. All right. So this is Allison's jewelry box. And I thought I would bring it just so that you would have a frame of reference. You say, what in the world is a God box? The God box is what a lot of us have, but we don't realize we have it. It's that box that we try to fit God into. Uh, we want to file away God deep in that box, file him away, catalog with headings, nowhere to go when we need a certain bit of information, nowhere to go when we need a certain verse or a certain truth or a certain version of the truth or a certain slice of the truth. Uh, but the God box, when I'm talking about the God box, I'm talking about all the things that come to your mind when you think about God. I'm talking about what you think about when you think about God. Because the God box is where all your presuppositions about God, that's where they are. Uh, it's where all your interpretations that have led you to believe what you believe about God, it's, it's in the God box. It's all of the assumptions that you have about God, stated, unstated, conscience, unconscious, your assumptions that, that you bring to every relationship, that you bring to every decision, that you bring to every single day of your life. Uh, the God box is where all the ideas of who you believe God is and equally important, what you believe God is like. And then out of the God box, because we all have a God box to some extent, in this God box begins to you know, form our framework for how we see the world. Uh, out of this God box, all of our ideas and assumptions and beliefs and interpretations and presuppositions about God begins to shape how we see not only God, 
but it begins to shape how we see each other and it begins to shape ultimately how we see, you know, ourselves. And so, you know, this God box is really important. And for all of us, again, I, I just wanna remind you that whatever you think about when you think about God, that's the most important thing about you because out of the thoughts that we have about God come the emotions that we feel towards God. Now, I, I've met some people, and maybe this would be you. I, I don't know your story, but maybe it's some of us. I, I've met lots of people who are just angry with God. They're angry at God. I've met non-Christians who say they don't believe in God, but yet they're angry with God. I don't even know how that works. How do you get angry at somebody you don't believe in? But they're angry at God and they'll tell you, well, if God exists, I, I just hate him. I don't, I don't like him. I, 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 he just makes me angry. I've met some Christians because of some things that have happened in their life. They've gotten angry with God. And the reason that people get angry with God, the reason they feel that way towards God is because of what's in their God box. There's some presuppositions and assumptions. There's some beliefs about God that fuel that anger. There's some, there's some assumptions about what God does and what God doesn't do that fuels that anger. And that's where that emotion comes from. There's some people who walk around and whenever they think about God, they just feel guilty. And the reason they feel guilty is because they've got some beliefs and ideas and interpretations about God that fuels those feelings of guilt whenever they think about God. For some people, they filed God away in such a small box. God seems so inconsequential, so inconsequential that they're actually just indifferent. They really don't have any big feeling one way or the other when it comes to God because they have filed God away in such a small box that God is so inconsequential, they're just indifferent. But, but then there's some, you know, and hopefully many of us that when they think about God, there, there's feelings of peace and joy because of what we believe or what we, you know, assume about God and all the things that we've read and then we interpreted it to mean this and to mean that. And, and so this is a really, really big deal. And when you read the New Testament, here's what we actually discover about Jesus. Jesus came to undo the world's wrong beliefs about God and people. You find that all throughout Jesus's ministry. Jesus came to undo your wrong beliefs about God and people. And Jesus came to undo my wrong beliefs about God and people, because here's the thing. Sometimes you're not even aware of what is in your God box. And some of the things that you feel about God and some of the ways that you respond to God and some of the ways that you see people and certain people and certain groups of people and all of those emotions and all of those sentiments and sometimes those prejudices and all of those things, it's coming from somewhere. It's coming from a place. It's coming from your ideas. It's coming from your thoughts. It's coming from your beliefs. And Jesus came to undo that. He came to untangle the confusion about who is God and what is he like. He came to deconstruct the misunderstandings and correct the misrepresentations and you know, to clarify the distortion about I really, I, I just, I can't really understand what God is like. He came to clarify that. He, he came to fill in what was incomplete when it came to people's ideas about God. And so when Jesus showed up, he, he stepped into a religious system that was like all religious systems of all of history. And every religious system always begins with God and then it begins to systematize beliefs about God, characteristics about God, attributes of God. And there's nothing wrong with systematizing, but this is just kind of what religious systems do. It systematizes our ideas and beliefs about God and it's nicely folded away, it's nicely filed away. We put it inside the box, so it's system, systematized. And then whenever there's a conflict between, you know, this attribute, this characteristic of God, and they seem to kind of be in conflict or they don't really make sense with one another, then what do we do? We, we take what's been systemized, systematized and then we customize. 
So we take the parts that we like, we leave behind the parts that we don't. And so we fall away the parts that we like to believe and put those in the box and the other we just kind of cast away. And then we emphasize accordingly. Whatever we systematize and whatever, you know, we have been able to customize, then that's what we pretty much want to talk about and hear other people talk about. And so Jesus, when he showed up, the real important thing about Jesus is this. He didn't show up and say, hey, I have the best explanation of God. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus showed up and said, I am the best explanation of God. And there was a really big difference in that. And that made a lot of people uncomfortable and it challenged a lot of people's God boxes. And it made a lot of people hold tight to those beliefs and those interpretations and those assumptions. And some though were loose handed with it. Some were open, some were curious as we talked about last week. And because of what we celebrated last week on Easter, And because we are a people who take the resurrection seriously, as Christians, as Jesus followers, we have to take everything Jesus said seriously. You can't take the resurrection on Easter Sunday seriously if you don't also take every single thing that Jesus said seriously. And here's some things Jesus said. Jesus one day said, if you knew me, you would know the Father. If you knew me, you would know the Father, and the implications are very clear. To know the Father is to know me, and to know me is to know the Father. Jesus would also say that me and the Father, we are one. We're not duplicitous, we're not you know, in conflict. You know, the Father doesn't have one personality and the Son has another. No, we, we, we are one, we are one, me, the Father, the Holy Spirit, we, we are one together, but yet we're distinct. We're, and nobody kind of knew what that meant, but then Jesus said something that everybody understood what it meant in John 14. He said, when you've seen me, when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. When you have seen me, you have seen God. When you have heard me, you have heard God. When you saw me, you saw God. When you saw how I reacted, you saw how God reacts. And it was a startling claim, and it was a blasphemous claim. But if it is a true claim, and we Christians believe that it is because we believe that the resurrection causes us to take everything Jesus said seriously, If what Jesus said is true, then now we have something to anchor our beliefs and ideas and assumptions and presuppositions about God to. We make sure that we tether it to Jesus because if to know Jesus is to know the Father and to see Jesus is to see the Father, then everything that I need to make sure that I believe about the Father, I need to take my cues from the Son because everything that is true about Jesus is also true about the Father. And nothing can be true about Jesus unless it is also true about the Father. And the vice verse is also true. Whatever is true about the Father is also true about the Son. And if it's not true about the Father, then it's not true about the Son. When you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So when we have that frame of reference, when we have that anchor, it changes the way we read the New Testament. It changes the way we read the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because now when we open up the New Testament, every time we find Jesus telling a story, every time we find Jesus preaching a sermon, every time that we find Jesus performing a miracle, he is either communicating, illustrating, or demonstrating what God is like. Every single time, 
Whatever Jesus is speaking, whatever Jesus is doing, in other words, every action, reaction, and interaction of Jesus reveals to us what God is like. So if you wanna begin to read the New Testament all over again, and if you wanna begin to read the New Testament with fresh eyes, just go through and look for every action, reaction, and interaction that Jesus had and then see what it teaches you about God the Father. Because he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To know me is to know the Father. Now, again, this is a big truth. This is a big idea. Because if the truth sets us free, then it's the lies that hold us back. And Jesus came to set us free from the beliefs and the ideas about God that hold us back. And Jesus came to reveal the Father to us in such a way that sets us free. It doesn't put us into bondage, it sets us free. So Jesus came along to set us free from the box, the box that causes us to limit God, to doubt God, to dismiss God, to misunderstand God, perhaps at times to misrepresent God. He came to set us free from the presuppositions in here that allows us to mistreat some people without any ding to our conscience. He came to set us free from all the crushing weight of guilt and shame that we carry around because of what's in the box. And fortunately for all of us, Jesus came to set the record straight. And he helped all of us, if we're willing, he helps all of us to get rid of the God box. Because if we don't, our God box may actually blind us to God himself. And this is how John put it one day. He says, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. So he was born that way, right? I mean, he was just always blind from the time that he was born. His disciples, Jesus' disciples, asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So this would have been a common question back in the days of Jesus because in everybody's God box, and everybody's theology box, they believed that there was a cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering. And the worse your suffering, that must mean the worse your sin is. So ever how bad your sin is, that will be seen in your suffering. So if someone is suffering terribly, then it's because they must have terrible sin somewhere in their life or somewhere in their family. And it was almost like this idea of of Judaistic karma. Like everybody's gonna kind of get what they deserve. And if you're a sinner, if your family is steeped in sin, then sooner or later, suffering is gonna be your story. And you can only imagine that this would affect compassion how you looked at people. Because when you look at somebody and you say, oh, they're getting what they deserved or they asked for it or they got themselves into it, we're almost a little resistant to be compassionate because we're like, you should have known better. You chose this, you made your bed, you lay in it and all of those things. Well, that was kind of the theological equivalent of all of that way of thinking. So if I looked at you and you're suffering suffering horribly, my first thought is, well, you have must have been a horrible sinner. You are getting what you deserve. Compassion that that is kind of a default within a Christian culture, a Western culture at times, this was not the case in the first century. And so you looked at somebody suffering bad and you thought bad sinner getting what they deserve. And so his disciples looking at this man born blind looks at Jesus and said, okay, Jesus, why is this man born blind? Because why is, is a big question we all wanna know. Why is this, why is that? Why is this man blind? Is it his sin or is it his parents' sin? Because obviously it's somebody's sin. And we all know that sometimes people's bad choices, people's wrong choices, people's sinful choices, they bring suffering 
and pain in their own life, and sometimes somebody else's sinful choices or bad choices, they can bring suffering in our life. But Jesus, he, he kind of gives a new way of thinking about this particular situation. He says, neither, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened. Let me tell you why, let me tell you the why. Let me tell you what you guys can't know, but I know because of who I am. Let me tell you why. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so Jesus gives a brand new classification. He, he kind of takes out their thinking out of their box and says, okay, I'm gonna give you a brand new perspective, a brand new framework. And he says, I want you to know that when it comes to pain, yeah, there are times that we can invite pain in our own life. And yes, there are times that people can bring pain into our own life, but there are times where God reaches into someone's circumstance and situation and God only himself is able to attach a purpose to their pain. And this was a big deal because the only thing worse than living a life of pain is living a life of pain that you feel like has no purpose. It has no point. And the New Testament comes along to expand on this idea of Jesus to say that there's never any pain that you'll go through. There's never any suffering that you will endure, that there is not a divine purpose attached to it. And it may not make the suffering easier and it may not make the pain less than what it is. But it is certainly worth knowing that the pain of our lives, that God is able to attach a purpose to it. And beyond that, he says, there are times in our life when God uses our pain as a means, as an avenue to show off his power. That God uses distress, that God will use a disease, that God will use pain and suffering, that God will use it to show off his pain and, or to show off his glory and to show off his power. And that's how God sometimes works. God is not the author of it. We live in a world of sin, and ever since then, lots of bad things happen to good people, to bad people, to people in between. And Jesus just says, sometimes our pain can become a platform for God's display of his power, for his grace, for his faithfulness. And, and we all know this. We've all seen this. I want you to think back to someone of great faith that you watch suffer. And you'll know exactly what Jesus is talking about. When you see a person of great faith endure great pain. Uh, I, I woke up this morning and uh, I, I just, I don't know what made me think of her other than what I was gonna talk about, but I, I thought about little Lindsay Sharp and, and her funeral was a little bit over a year ago and she served in Kids Creek and, and, and I, I, just, I just had an image in my mind. I was thinking about her suffering and I was thinking about her journey and, and I just thought to myself, every time that I talked to her, every time that I talked to her, every time I went to go see her, I, I left there thinking, oh my God, her faith is making my faith bigger. I, I, I can see God in this. I can see God's faithfulness, God's peace and God's joy. I mean, have you ever been there? Have you ever watched that happen in somebody's life? And, and this is what Jesus is saying. Sometimes God can reach down there into our pain and God can display his power. So he says, okay, I need you to get rid of that old way of thinking, that old box, because I want you to see the world a little bit different because God can attach purpose to pain. And so Jesus just keeps on going and he says, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. He says, so, you know, there's a sense of urgency, guys. I'm not gonna be with you always, but while I'm with you, I am the light of the world and I'm here to illuminate. I am here to communicate who it is that God is and what God is like. I am the light of the world. I'm here to clear up some confusion. I'm here to help you guys get rid of these boxes that are holding you back. 
I need to introduce you to the truth that will set you free. And it says, after he said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Now, this is a kind of a a neat little uh, series of events in my opinion, because here's this guy, he's born blind and and you know, when, when you lose one sense, your other senses kind of kick in and, and you're able to you know, hear a little bit better than other people, smell a little bit better than other people. And so Jesus and his disciples are having this conversation within earshot of this guy. And he's heard the whole thing. He heard the disciples say, you know, was it this man's sin or his parents' sin? And he's thinking to himself, I've heard that one before. If I had a dollar for every time, better, could you give me a dollar? Uh, if I had a dollar for every time I've heard that one. And then, you know, Jesus talking about, well, we gotta be about the work of the one who sent me because night's coming and I am the light of the world. And he's thinking, well, that's the first time I've heard that one. I'm not sure what's going on. And then he hears somebody, and he's thinking, well, that's interesting. I mean, that's, that's spitting with some authority there. I mean, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty intense. And the next thing he feels is something moist and wet on his face. And he's thinking, oh, now, come on. What's the deal? I'm just asking for a little bit of help, pal. I mean, you don't have to take out your bad morning on me. And all of a sudden, Jesus said, go. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. And the guy's thinking, well, of course I need to wash. You have got something wet and I don't, I don't even wanna ask what this is. What is that? And, and he says, you know, the word Siloam means sin. And so the man went and washed and he came home seeing. And so it's kind of funny, but I mean, it's an incredible event. And, and the guy, he goes and washes. And then all of a sudden when he washes it away, he can see. And, and the first thing he wants to do is go home and just start telling people, look at me, I, I can... I can I can see now. And, and it begins a feeding frenzy. It, it begins a great controversy. And it says that his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging ask, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claim that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. And then they asked the question that any of us, had we been there, would have asked. How? How then were your eyes opened, they asked. So we're always interested in the how, when usually the how is less important than the who. How, how was it? What, what was the process? What, tell us about this. How then were your eyes open, they ask. And this was the obvious question because they had no box for this. This is the man we knew had been born blind from the time that he was a baby. We watched him try to learn to walk when he was a kid and, and, and we watched him in his teenage years. We know that this guy was born blind. He replied, this man they called Jesus, made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash and so I went and washed and then I could see. And then of course they asked the natural follow-up. Where is this man, they asked. He said, I don't know. And then it says, they then brought him to the Pharisees because under that particular, you know, epoch of time in the law and the old covenant, uh, if you had supposedly experienced a, a, a miracle of some sort, you were asked to go to the temple and have your miracle certified to make sure it wasn't a hoax. And if you were allowed to kind of re-enter into society without any penalties or you were allowed back at the temple. So, you know, the natural thing was they wanted to take him to the Pharisees and kind of get this thing certified, but there was more to it than that. So they brought him to the Pharisees and the man, the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Dum, da dum, dum. You know, the soundtrack changes. They brought him to the religious leaders. And Jesus, from the perspective of the religious leaders box, 
Jesus had broken one of the 10. Jesus had broken the command of God to keep the Sabbath day. And from the perspective of their interpretations and their assumptions and their experience and their history and their tradition and what Papaw told them and what great Papaw told them and what great, 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 great Papaw had told all the Papos after him, you know, that, well, you know, you, you get the point. And it's like, he, he had all of that. They had all of that deep down there inside. And based on all of that, without knowing anything else, Jesus was wrong and Jesus was guilty. Now, Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So to say that Jesus was wrong and Jesus was guilty was saying that God was wrong and God was guilty of breaking his own law. How is that even possible? And so then it says, therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He, being Jesus, put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, Surely none of us would have responded this way. Surely none of us think this way. This man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Well, how do they know? Their box told them so. This is how they see the world. This, this is where beliefs and assumptions and presuppositions and ideas and worldview and all of those things come into play. It comes to play in conversations. It comes to play when you get new information, it comes into play in what seems like maybe the most insignificant times. And because Jesus didn't fit in their box, because Jesus didn't fit into what they thought about God, they couldn't see around, they couldn't see above, they couldn't see below it. They could not see what was right in front of their face. And the irony of the story now begins to be seen. The man who was born blind can now see. And those who think they can see are obviously blind, blinded by their box. But there were some, like that faction of Nicodemus and some of his friends, but others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the man. What have you to say about him? So now they're asking this guy that has not been allowed to be at the temple, a guy who's really not been allowed to be a part of the religious culture because he was such a terrible sinner because of his great suffering. Now they ask him, pretty big theological question. What have you to say about him? What's your beliefs about this guy? It was your eyes he opened. And the man, you know, the man kind of replied like, like a novice or a greenhorn, like, I'm gonna go with prophet. I'm gonna go with prophet. I think if you can hawk up on the ground, take some mud, put it on some eyes, tell him, man, go take a bath and he can see, <laughs> I'm going profit. Profit for 200. That's what I'm going with right there. And it says they still did not believe. Now think about that. There is as close as irrefutable evidence standing right in front of them. They have the testimony of a man born blind who said, this is what this man did to me. And they still did not believe. Why did they not believe? Because it did not fit inside their box. Their beliefs, their assumptions were keeping them from believing, keeping them from embracing 
And it says, they did not believe until they sent for the man's parents. So they bring in the man's parents. Is this your son? They ask. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. What a great parenting move. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, it sounds okay. Well, here, here's some parents who want their, their kid to grow up, face, have a little responsibility, learn how to you know, speak up when they need to. But it says, John gives us this little parentheses. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. So we learned something else about the box. Most of the time, people with the God box, they only want to hang out with people who have a God box just like them. And if your box isn't like my box, then your box is wrong and my box is obviously right. And there's not much place for you around here. So go find some people who have a box like your box because your box is not like our box and your box is not welcome here. And thus we have church in Appalachia. (laughs) And church in America. And we just hop around and 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 we just rabbit from one church to the other because we discover, oh, they're box. They're box, I say. It's bigger than mine. Well, gosh, gosh darn. Somebody else has a bigger box than you, I'm sorry. Or somebody has a smaller box than we do. And we just, and then we move on. And then we just have, and here's what, they had already made up their mind. Jesus didn't fit in their box. They were certain, so they just stopped asking questions. It says, they had already decided. How do you already decide something before you hear something? Because of your box. How do you decide before you hear something or study something or read widely and deeply about something? How do you know ahead of time that it's not true? How do you know ahead of time that you don't believe it? Christians, we do this all the time. Have you read this book? I don't believe it. Well, great. That was simple. That was easy. They had already decided they were going to put somebody out because they needed everything to fit into their system. It says the second time they summoned the man who had been born blind, give glory to God by telling the truth as if he hadn't been. They said, we know, we're certain We have no doubt, we are certain this man, Jesus, is a sinner. We're certain. When they said speak the truth, they were meaning their truth. When they said give glory to God, tell the truth, they were really saying our version of the truth. We want you to say what supports what we already believe is true. So we don't wanna hear anything. We don't wanna have to be challenged by anything that doesn't already fit in the box we have. And if you try to speak something to me that's not in my box, I will dismiss you. I will cancel you. I will not listen to someone who challenges what's in my box. Because it's nice, it's neat, it's systematized, it's customized, and it's just, it's good. It works for me. So don't don't go messing up my box. It says that he replied, And I love this. You've heard this verse before. Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I do know, I was blind. But now I see. I'm not scholars like you guys. 
I'm not theologues like you guys. I'm not experts in the law and tradition like you guys, but let me just tell you, the only thing I know is the only thing I need to know. I was blind, <laughs> but now I see. And he's enjoying looking at their faces, I imagine. It's like he was saying, I know that there's lots that I don't know. I can't have conversations with you guys about the things you have conversations about, but I'll tell you what I do know. I was blind, I was there, I was begging, and he came up and he, and I can see. I don't have all the answers, guys. I got some opinions, but what I do know, I was blind, but now I see. The blind man who can now see was not going to deny the undeniable. He was not gonna close his eyes to the facts that were right in front of his face. Unlike the blind religious leaders who were willing to deny the undeniable, who were willing to close their eyes to the facts right in front of their face. It says, then they ask him, what did he do to you? How did he open up your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Then he gets sarcastic. I love when people get sarcastic. Why do you, you want to hear it again? I get the feeling you all want to be his disciples too, right? And then he says, no one, no one. I promise he says no one. Nobody, it's nobody, nobody. Talk on it. I was wrong. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He says, that's all I know. I'm kind of following the signs in the direction they're pointing, kind of following the evidence in the direction it's going. And here we see the irony of this man being able to see more clearly than the religious leaders. It's not that they couldn't see, they didn't want to see. It's just that they didn't know. It's okay not to know, but it's not okay not to want to know. Because sometimes we fear the truth that begins to take away our God box. We, we fear the truth that it's gonna upset, that it's gonna change, that it's gonna, we just, we don't have sometimes the willingness to let go of it. This group of people, they had stopped asking and they had stopped looking because of their box. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth and how dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. In other words, all those years of begging and being blind, you deserved it. And they were refusing to see what was right in front of their eyes. Refusing to see what was right in front of their eyes. A group of people so certain about God. Oh yeah, God, okay, yeah, which, okay, mm-hmm. Yeah, certain about God, so certain about God. They couldn't recognize God when he was standing in front of their face. A group so committed to the scriptures Oh, do you love the scriptures? Oh, we love the scriptures. You believe every word of the scripture? Oh, absolutely. I'm, yeah, I believe every word of the scripture. So committed to the scripture, they didn't recognize the author when he stood in front of them. They were blind to the wonder of the miraculous right in front of them. And they kicked him out. 
And it says, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And the man said, I believe. And he worshiped him. And then Jesus, as a teaching moment, said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and ask, what? Are we blind too? Are you saying we're blind? And Jesus could nod his head and say, yes, because you are blind. You have been blinded by your box, blinded by your certainty, blinded by your beliefs and assumptions and presuppositions, blinded by your interpretations, blinded by your opinions, blinded by your conjecture, you're blinded. You're blinded so much, you refuse to give compassion to the people that God created. You're so blind, you can't even see your own blindness. And let me tell you, this should give us all pause. Listen to me, don't miss this. Those who loved God the most and those who knew the scripture best were blinded by their box and blinded to the point they couldn't even see God himself. So here's my question. What has certainty? What has familiarity? What has your box blinded you from? What is it that you can't see? What is it that you don't want to see? What are the questions you're afraid to ask? What's the information you're afraid to entertain? If you're not a follower of Jesus and once upon a time you put inside your box that there is no God and everything about Jesus and the Bible and all of that stuff, it's, it's just, it is what it is, but it's not for me. And then you went out and you found information to support what you wanted to be true. You listened to lectures that would support what you wanted to believe was true. You found podcasts, you read books, you developed snarky little reactions when people brought up faith so that everybody would know what your box was. But if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a believer and you stopped looking, you stopped exploring, you stopped having conversations, you stopped entertaining the idea of what if I'm wrong? What if, what if the box that I have assumed is blinding me to what is right in front of my face. I say there is no evidence, but what if my box has blinded me to the evidence that is there, the evidence that can be found, the evidence that can be followed? But what if your box has blinded you to the intellectual argument for Christianity, the intellectual argument for following Jesus? 
And what if it's there in front of you? But you've just not wanted to see it. There, it's okay to say, I don't believe, but it's not okay to say, I don't want to believe. It's okay to say, I don't know, but it's not okay to say, I don't wanna know. I've made up my mind, I'm certain this is the way it is. Would you think about laying aside the box and asking God maybe to help you to see what can be seen? If you're a follower of Jesus, I mean, a serious follower of Jesus and and you've got a theology and you love the scriptures and, and you love spirituality and you love the local church. And I love all of those things. I wanna encourage us not to get so systematic, not to get so settled and technical and precise and close-handed that our box blinds us to new, exciting truths about God. To think that you know everything that you need to know about God, to think that I know everything that I can know about God, that I'm finite and I have in some way figured out the infinite, that I am fallible and in some way I have figured out the infinite infallible God of the cosmos. How many of us are missing the grand adventure of our faith? The grand discovery of every single day of waking up and looking up and looking around and discovering some wonderful new truth about God that sets us to a new degree of freedom. That sets us free from what has held us back. That we open our eyes with awe and gratitude and a desire to worship and to serve because we begin to see Him. Not just through our little bitty box, but we see Him. And here's what I know about you and here's what I know about me. No matter what your box is, God is bigger than you think He is. And God is better than you think He is. Don't miss Him. He's transcendent. He's not limited by the rules of reality that we have to play by. He's pervasive in all of creation as he sustains it by his power and his being. He's omniscient. He knows everything from one corner of infinity to the other. He knows it, he processes it in real time. He's omnipresent, he exists in past, present, future. He is not confounded by the space-time continuum. He exists outside of time, he is eternal and he is faithful and he is compassionate and he is forgiving and he's holy and he's just and he's righteous and he's all of those things and so much more. And there's no prayer that you can pray is too big for him. No prayer you can pray that's too small for him. There's no sin that you can sin that's too great for him to forgive. He's bigger and better than we ever thought. And for us Christians, not non-Christians, but for us Christians to just come in, twiddle our thumbs, play church, come in, go out, no big deal. We need a fresh glimpse of what Isaiah said. I saw his glory. I saw the one who sat upon the throne and all of heaven was worshiping him. Holy, holy, holy. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And to know me is to know the Father. So let's let Jesus take away our boxes.
and set them aside. And perhaps we'll see what we've never been able to see before. Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm not even quite sure how to begin to dismantle my box. But I believe it starts with keeping my eyes on you, to fix my eyes on Jesus, the one who says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father in every action and reaction and interaction that it reveals to me something about the great God of heaven and earth, the creator, the redeemer, the one who entered time and space to redeem us from sin, sorrow, and death. God, let us see what can be seen. Let us be open and curious and find a newfound excitement in our faith as we grow in grace and knowledge of you. With all of our heads bowed and all of our eyes closed, would you just take a moment and just ask God the Holy Spirit to speak into your heart what needs to be spoken in this moment. Just for you. Just now. Father, speak to our hearts. in a way we can't deny. In Jesus' name and everybody said,